Hi, this is Ben Kaspit. Welcome to On Israel. Previously on our new All Monitor podcast on Israel, we discussed the entanglement of what was supposed to be a leisurely walk in the White House Rose Garden, a plan for unilateral Israeli settlement annexation with the sweeping support of a particularly friendly American president. But as always in the Middle East, whatever can go wrong goes wrong and then turns into a classic Catch-22 situation, Middle Eastern style, of course. The leisurely afternoon walk in the park has morphed into a fascinating, challenging adventure with numerous participants. Our current chapter focuses on the U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, a foreign diplomat who finds himself cast in the role of mediator between the two halves of Israel's so-called unity government. Friedman met over the weekend with Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi of the Blue and White Party, who is not exactly wild about unilateral annexation of territories. This coming week, Friedman is scheduled to meet with the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and probably also with the trio, Netanyahu, Ashkenazi and Benny Gantz, the leader of Blue and White, who is also Netanyahu's defense minister and alternate prime minister. Friedman will try to square the circle and get all three to the same bottom line. Friedman is doing his utmost to bring both sides of the complex problem to one agreed solution, in other words, to create an Israeli consensus between the Likud and Blue and White on the annexation issue. He stepped into the fray after it became apparent that the White House would only give its okay to annexation if both sides of the unity government give their blessing. This is turning into a real drama, with the Arab world issuing increasingly dire warnings about the implications of annexation. The latest warning was issued by the ambassador of the United Arab Emirates to Washington, Yosef Olotaiba, who wrote an unprecedented op-ed in an Israeli newspaper this past weekend to sound an alarm about the planned annexation. Europeans are also busy trying to block the Israeli move, while Jordan's King Abdullah and Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas continue to warn anyone who will listen. And what do the Israelis themselves think of the idea? They don't seem to care. Two opinion polls from the past week clearly indicate that the annexation issue is very low on their list of priorities. Israelis are much more concerned about the economic fallout of the corona crisis, the widespread unemployment, the ballooning national debt, and the virus that re refuses to quit. Benjamin Netanyahu, perhaps the greatest political manipulator of modern times, must now decide whether he is willing to gamble and how much. To what extent is he willing to take the risk of annexation in order to ensure his place in history as the leader who expanded Israel's sovereign territory with American backing? This will be the topic of our conversation today with a man who knows Netanyahu better than most. Professor Uzi Arad was Netanyahu's foreign policy advisor in his first term as prime minister from 1996 to 1999 and remained at his side during Netanyahu's years in political exile and on the opposition benches. When Netanyahu returned to power in 2009, he named Arad his national security advisor. Arad, who had been the Mossad's director of research, was for many years in charge of measuring and analyzing the mood in Arab capitals and among Arab leaders. He knows the Middle East inside out and also knows Netanyahu like the back of his end. 
In recent years, Professor Arad has been a harsh critic of Netanyahu, and although he is a staunch hawk on defense matters and holds right-wing political views, he also has some tough things to say about Netanyahu's annexation intentions. Uzi Arad will be joining us right after a short commercial break. Stay tuned. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East, and if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon El Monitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our El Monitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform, on Israel with Ben Caspit and on the Middle East with me, Andrew Parasoliti. Professor Uzi Arad, former Israeli National Security Advisor and Senior Mossad Official, thank you for joining our new Almonitor podcast on Israel. Shalom, Uzi. Shalom, and thank you very much, Mr. Kaspit. Let me take you back 11 years to the time you both took office. Netanyahu as Prime Minister and you as National Security Advisor. I remember a conversation you and I had in the Knesset cafeteria when you told me that you too really want to conduct a reassessment of Israel's relations with the Arab world and of Israel's peace negotiations with the Palestinians. You were hoping to change the paradigm which you believed was wrong that had underpinned all such contacts until then. Your problem was that the president's name was Barack Obama and he was not exactly on board with your views. History presented Netanyahu with another chance in the shape of Donald Trump, the friendliest resident of the White House that Israel ever had. Don't you think Israel should not miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to expand its sovereign territory and draw its eastern borders? Well, uh, you took us back uh, 10 years ago or so, and right you are. Indeed, at the very beginning of his term, uh, 10 years ago or so, more than 10 years, uh, he did have uh, a review of Israel's international position so as to adjust um, his posture to the current circumstances. The product of this review, based on his visit to Washington in early in the spring of 2009, was the famous Bar-Ilan speech, which indeed was a well-considered speech, which called for the establishment of a Palestinian state with uh, limited sovereignties, but clearly a Palestinian state, and he argued why this may be the case, and he made the point that he does not want to rule over the fate of Palestinian citizens, and that is the main reason for his desire for separation while taking into account Israel's security uh, considerations. But that was at the time, and surely, as you said, 
history played an interesting uh, trick. For the first time, Netanyahu has been presented with a, a Republican president uh, on the other side, because throughout his previous terms, he had to deal with Clinton in his first term and then Obama for full eight years. And now suddenly there is Trump, who obviously is friendlier to him and to Israel, and that does present an opportunity. The question, however, is, is it really an opportunity? Because had he been able to uh, get some tangible accomplishments that would uh, reduce Israel's uh, security problems, enhance Israel's position, then that might have been a genuine opportunity. But what had actually occurred was the opposite. He did raise the expectations on the right wing that he could now push for another policy, a departure from the two-state solution, and an annexation, an ambitious annexation program. The right wing embraced that notion and elevated its expectations to the highest level. Netanyahu, having a need for the support of the right wing, uh, did allow this to uh, be on the agenda. And now, however, it looks like he will fail to deliver on that. And the reason he would fail is because this plan has brought out, brought out a tremendous opposition from all quarters. In the first place, in Israel itself, it is not supported by uh, the full Israeli society. Almost a half of the Israeli body politic opposes uh, annexation and unilateral annexation of the kind that Netanyahu had promised uh, that would come with the blessing of Washington. And that is uh, not a simple thing. But uh, his military may be concerned that uh, this may bring about greater friction on the West Bank. Uh, others are concerned, uh, as has been made explicit only yesterday, by opposition from the Arab states that Netanyahu thought he could also get closer to. We had opposition coming from the Gulf. We've had opposition coming from all other international parties, the U.S. accepted. So now it looks like um, it would not be a, he would not be in a position to do something uh, which would have uh, the support except for possibly limited support of the United States. But that then is limited in duration because near as we can tell, America is going to, to a, an election campaign. And will any support given by America remain valid if there would be a change of government in Washington? I doubt it. And if the current government in Washington would be reelected, well, then Netanyahu could have postponed his idea until such re-election takes place and still have uh, that support. So why present it now as an opportunity when, in fact, it turns out as a major headache that is bringing up and actually increasing Israeli security risks throughout the region. And now he is stuck. I think he will fail to deliver. Let us talk about the Jordan Valley and the, the, the possible annexation of the Jordan Valley. And I want to ask you, as someone intimately familiar with the Middle East arena and all its actors, to what extent will annexation destabilize the Hashemite kingdom? After all, 
if we get King Abdullah on his own, he would be the first to admit that the, he prefers the Israeli army on the Jordan to the Palestinian forces. Yes, he has his unique, Jordan has its unique security considerations, which does allow for certain common denominators with Israel. But the way that the plan is being advanced by Israel, including the creation of enclaves, including the creation of, of obtaining, uh, establishing its sovereignty over large chunks of territory, and then against uh, the uh, most Arab uh, attitude, let alone uh, the Gulf and so forth, does not permit Jordan to move aside and to take it uh, in stride. So Jordan too has made some noises about that this may jeopardize Israeli-Jordanian relations. And that is in the particular case of Jordan, one cannot accept uh, Jordan to take that uh, possibility with, uh, with uh, accepting it without uh, taking certain contrary measures. And uh, certainly, as the Gulf countries have made uh, clear, they too may take such positions in solidarity with the Palestinians have been shunned aside. And then finally, the Palestinians themselves uh, in the territories may take action. And should they take action in the form of demonstrations or rioting or an intifada as our military people are getting ready for such eventuality, then clearly none of those countries can remain, uh, you know, uh, without any action. And they would probably lend their support to the Palestinians on this score. So I don't think we can expect any understanding to such unilateralism or any substantive annexation from any Arab countries, and besides, from any other country in the world, the U.S. possibly accepted. You mentioned the Palestinians. Let's talk about one of the possibilities. I, I think most of the analysts assume that finally the Prime Minister and his partners from Kaholavan, Benny Gantz and Gabi Ashkenazi, will decide to go for a, a diet annexation, a, a light annexation, and maybe annex the, the three blocks, like something like the, the Gush Etzion block, the Malea Dumim block, and maybe even the city of Ariel. These blocks are in deep consensus within Israeli society. And if you add to this a, a package of benefits uh, to, uh, let's say, two Palestinian cities like Kalkilia and Jenin around them, bringing them the, the, the ability to annex themselves uh, territories from the sea area, maybe it can work and you can make some history without paying too much price. Well, Mr. Kaspit, you have been Netanyahu's biographer, and you know, as we all Israelis we do, we have this uh, joke about Bibi, as we call him. He always, you know, he maneuvers and he tries to do to be a magician, and at the end of the day, he gets the worst of all worlds. That is to say, he has to, as we say, to eat the fish, and then he's thrown out of town. And what might have been, as you said, a thin compromise that may get something could end up much worse. To give you just one example, suppose it does within the consensus. Suppose he only extends sovereignty technically, rhetorically, to the settlement blocks that have always been clear that they are populated by an Israeli majority and will remain so. The settlement blocks or those that you mentioned. 
suppose even includes Malay Domin, which everybody knew it would never to be returned. If he does that and he gets away with this, he would, uh, his critics from the right would say that he failed, would say that he did not fight the Palestinian state as it could and should have, and will criticize him for being, uh, for, for being scared. On the other hand, even such limited symbolic gesture or thing could result in some heightened friction. And suppose that this would ignite some limited uh, violence, then this would sour the whole thing because it would emerge as a very, as a losing proposition. Forgetting a rhetorical limited accomplishment of something that had been in our pockets anyway, he did generate the kind of thing that we all want to avoid, and that is some kind of eruption uh, of violence in one sector or another, and in so doing, he would be the losers from all sides. That's a possibility, no less than that, that he would score yet another magical coup, which would be simply symbolic. But even that could be overturned if in Washington, you would see a democratic administration come into office. Professor Arad, I think you know, as, as someone that stood beside Netanyahu for many years in office and in the political desert and as head of opposition, a prime minister in the 90s, uh, in this uh, decade, you know very well, I think more, more, more than many others, that he's working now on his legacy. He wants to affect, I think he, he, he realizes that he's not, he's close to the end of his political career and he wants to affect the legacy. He wants Wikipedia to mention first that he annexed the territories in the West Bank and uh, not mention first that he was a, a charged with bribery while in office. You know, this is his motivation. Maybe he's going this time until the end because this is his way to affect history. He is a ben of, a, of an historian, a son of an historian, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, yes. You know, the legacy argument um, did come to my mind, not only in the context of this uh, particular episode, but because of the uh, uh, appearance in the last couple of years of his tendency to take credit and to uh, sometimes inflate his accomplishments to grotesque proportions as if he wants to write his own future legacy. And he would then argue that Israel is outranking other countries, that Israel is being given, is uh, uh, been allowing himself to really uh, depart from a reality and flaunt uh, what would be fake accomplishments. And the question, why was he doing so? And the answer is that he wanted to imprint his so-called accomplishments, which in actually have not been so dramatic. And then it could have been, as you said, that he wanted this thing, like the annexation of certain uh, territories, to be another feather in his crown uh, in the legacy argument. But if that is the case, then I would try to think really ahead what his legacy might be. And that again, when you think about it hard, will do exactly the opposite. It could tarnish his legacy, literally tarnish, 
Why so? Because at the moment, he's in a position to say what he says, and he has multiple voices and channels and outlets to spread the word. But once gone from the scene, and that is when legacy really uh, establishes itself, his legacy would be shaped by his record, his real record, not his self-claimed record. And his record, as has been the case in the last year or two, has becoming very, very negative. For example, as you said, he's now on, in trial for bribery and so forth. But the protective measures that he has taken to defend himself of the law have been utterly democrat uh, destructive of Israel's democracy. He has been attacking Israel's uh, institutions, Israel's cherished institutions. He's been attacking the judiciary. He's been attacking the legislature. He's been attacking and he's been dividing Israel, setting half of the country against the other half. He's been a divisive force on the Israeli scene. And that picture is killing the image that he would be leaving behind so that actually if when he departs from the scene and that could happen now or in a year and a half who knows but his record would be much more modest it would be written not by him or his apologist but it would be written by neutral observers and realities plus his behavior and conduct in the last year he is now acquiring actually the image of what the Israeli Prime Minister who put him in office originally, uh, Shamir, characterized him. He called him a force for utter destruction. That may be his real legacy should he continue uh, playing the kind of role, including this very adventurous step on the annexation program. I want finally to ask you, uh, Professor Arad, uh, and let, let us focus in uh, another issue that I think Netanyahu sees himself as the, the master of all masters in this issue. And, and, and you know that if he will be asked, what is your legacy? He will say, he will say I am the protector of Israel, Shomer Israel. And let us speak about the, this, the issue of the Iranian nuclear effort. If you will have, will have the opportunity to write the, the Iranian nuclear effort chapter in Wikipedia concerning Mr. Netanyahu, what will be written there? That he failed on his Iranian mission. And I think that this is one of the issues that is most frustrating for him. But look at, look at the method. Obviously, when he moved into office and you were there, you saw him, he declared uh, the prevention of a nuclear Iran to be his primary uh, role, his primary mission. He put into that all his talent, energy, leadership qualities, and plenty of funds in preparing the military option for that matter. But all he got actually was actually some sanctions which did bring about the nuclear deal with Iran in which it did slow down the process. But instead of leveraging that agreement into greater efficacy in stalling and stopping Iran, he joined uh, uh, President Trump in the policy of destruction 
rather than building up the pressure. And now, if you look at the record that's coming out from, say, the IEA in Vienna, we have Iran free of the limitations, going on and reaching more than it would have done had it been under the agreement. And in fact, the Iranian danger is now more visible and more real than it was when he assumed office. So the question and the historian in his legacy would say two questions. Why, Bibi, did you fail to act when you could have acted militarily? You did have the option. Gone was the, uh, the opposition, Israeli opposition, and yet you got cold feet. Secondly, you made a raw deal because now what we have is in Iran, which is proceeding with its nuclear program, and you will still have to face the problem what to do about it. How indeed will he go about it? Because the risk today has not been reduced. It's still there, and he may be getting even closer. Professor Arad, it was very interesting. Thank you for joining us uh, in this On Israel podcast. I thank you very much, and uh, we will uh, be back right here with some closure thoughts after commercial break. Stay tuned. If you're listening to this podcast, you obviously care about the Middle East, and if you do, you should probably be reading El Monitor. El Monitor is a global newsroom headquartered in Washington, D.C., with a network of over 160 contributors around the world. El Monitor offers first-class reporting and analysis from a range of perspectives and an approach that represents the highest journalistic standards, as well as an award-winning commitment to press freedom and independence. If you haven't done so already, visit us at elmonitor.com, check out our articles, and sign up for our free newsletters. There's a lot to choose from, including the Week in Review, an essay that offers unusual insights and forecasts into the region based upon El Monitor's outstanding reporting. And if you haven't done so, please subscribe to our El Monitor podcast on your favorite podcast platform, On Israel with Ben Caspit and On the Middle East with me. Andrew Parasoliti. Thank you for uh, staying with us. I think it's fair to analyze that most of the retired Israeli security and defense experts think that the annexation adventure includes more risks than benefits, the way Professor Arad just described. In the upcoming weeks, we will try to bring the opposite views to on Israel from both retired generals and serving politicians. In the meanwhile, you can follow our intensive coverage of Israeli and Middle Eastern affairs here at Al Monitor and try to figure out who has the upper hand, Netanyahu, the Israeli right, the settlers and parts of the American administration, or the rest of the Middle East. Take care and see you here next Monday.